Welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again. I'm Amy Chase. Walter and I are back again this week to reflect on the second stage of the Heroic Hearts journey, the call to adventure. We'll be talking about Joan of Arc's voices, as she called her heavenly companions, and what this call can look like in our own lives. Walter also gives us a great summary of the Hundred Years' War and how critical the situation was for France at the time Joan received her call. I really think you'll enjoy this discussion, so let's get started. All right, well... Greetings to all of our listeners and hello to you, Walter. It's great to see you again. Hi again, Amy. How are you? Doing good. Had a good week, had a busy week, but just really excited uh, for our discussion this morning. Oh, me too. I did too. It was a pretty busy, a lot of activity, but uh, the, you know, it's good to get together. It sure is. And it's good to learn about, learn more about our, our dear heroine, Joan and and this exciting story that Twain has written for us. So we're going to. Yeah, I can't wait to, you know, kind of jump in and, and talk about there's some really neat stuff that we're, we're uh, coming into. And um, we'll get a little bit more of Twain magic. But most of all, we'll start seeing a little bit more of Joan. Yeah. And um, and that'll be fun. Great. Well, let's see. So um, so last week we left our listeners uh, with a couple of questions. And I'm just going to review those again briefly so we can have them in the back of our mind as we go forward because we're starting to build a a living experience of Joan's story and the questions are an important part of that. Well, that's a good way to put it and that's uh, <laughs> what we're hoping again, reiterating last time, we want people to walk, walk this with us. It's um, We hope you enjoy listening, but more than anything, we hope that you'll be walking with us and one way to do that is is through these reflective questions. Yes. And so the, the first question that you had was about uh, the first time you sensed a memorable enchanting moment. And we're going to talk about our enchanting moments here in a second. And <laughs> how would you describe that experience? And then um, similar to that, have you been have you experienced a calling to something greater or a higher purpose? And what was that like? Those are those are great questions. And, you know, um, we want the the audience to reflect a little bit. But, you know, as you were reading them, uh, you know, I got to thinking, because it actually formed the foundation of me getting started in in reading about and writing about uh, St. Joan of Arc. You know, I remember growing up as a kid, um, I was on the high plains, but I remember looking out over vast fields, empty fields of farmland, and seeing rolling thunderstorms in the distance, rolling across the fields and <laughs> uh, wheat fields and things like that. <clears throat> and I, I look back at that, <clears throat> excuse me, and say, that was truly what I first remember as an enchanting moment and a moment that raised my thinking to a different level. And I think it gave me a contemplative spirit, even though I didn't really realize it at the time as a, as a kid. And I look back on that as I grew into trying to understand uh, St. Joan of Arc. So, you know, just kind of throw that out as an example. That was like, one of those early enchanting moments that I had that still resonates with me today and impacts the way uh, I write and, and and think about Joan of Arc. 
That's beautiful. And it's interesting how how this notion of an enchanting moment will be interpreted differently by, you know, by different people. Right. For right. me, the idea of enchantment always was related to a, a feeling of connectedness, of 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 crossing bridges between people and cultures and finding, you know, a way to, um, to come together. And so when I was a young person, when I was in high school, I was an exchange student in Belgium and just some of the connections that I made, um, and with, through that experience, that cultural exchange, and in particular, um, participating in a folk dancing group and getting together at these festivals with people, Mm -hmm. you know, with groups from all different countries, uh, and, and, coming together to enjoy music and dance. For me, that was enchanting. Well, you know, it's interesting that you talk about the connectedness be, and, and connectedness between people, because that I, I think is really one of the important sort of sub messages that, that, that we have. I remember talking about this, uh, communicating this, this uh, incident or this feeling with a friend of mine who also grew up in the same area. And I remember that he commented that he felt the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think a really uh, important point was that it really wasn't just something that was just, Oh, just something that Walter kind of experienced, but there, that there seemed to be something there that connected with other people as well. And even though we didn't have to use a lot of words to describe it, but he was able to say, I know what you mean. There was some empathy. There was empathy in understanding each other. And I think that's an important, really important thing you mentioned about enchantment is it's not just some sort of fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's really touching on realities that draw us out of that dome of oppression, draw us to what I say is the real world. The, the dome of oppression is not the real world. We think we, we think the real world is all this mess that we're in. The real world is that world of, outside the dome of oppression in, in my mind and it draws us out and when somebody says i i felt it too i know what you mean from from the way you describe it that's a form of empathy now between people and so there must be something real you know out it's, there it's discovering the world outside of ourselves whether that's in the beauty of nature or art or in another person yeah, uh, it's very. I think it's very important uh, to keep that in mind as we go forward and as we talk about our heroine, Joan of Arc, because ultimately th- this is what we, I think the power in studying the life of Joan of Arc is a sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. So I think you've really hit on something really big here that as the reader goes, continues to go through with us in the story, think of that term empathy because we, we, we've got to be careful about Joan is so good. I can never be like Joan and uh, which is very true in my case. And so she can seem as if how, you know, practical can it be? She's, she's beyond me in terms of her heroism and her goodness. Well, maybe, yeah, you know, that's how I feel (laughs) exactly how I feel. But, you know, that's not what really drew me into Joan was that thinking that, oh, I can be like her because honestly, I never think I can be like her. Mm. But what I can do is seek empathy. You see what I mean? What I can seek is trying to understand her heart, trying to understand who she is. And that is at the core of what drew me in and made me a better 
a better man. Mm. What made me a better man uh, with Joan was precisely the idea of empathy. I call it empathic devotion, meaning I'm not trying to compare myself to her. I just want to try to understand her. And in understanding her, I'm drawn into, and I don't become... I don't become the great person, you know, of mm-hmm. Arc. I haven't saved a country yet or anything, um, but I'm a better man. And that's what great literature does for us because it does allow us to enter into these different lives and see the world with different eyes and even, you know, consider how we would make decisions in those situations. Um, and we get to, we get to follow it out through the course of the story. Yeah. Well, I'm just so glad you brought that up because that's, that's going to play a key. I'll be talking a lot about that as we, right. as we go forward. All right. Well, um, let's, let's exchange some enchanting moments then, shall we? Well, why don't you, I went first last time. Okay. And, um, why don't we have you go first? This well, time? thank you. <laughs> so a couple of nights ago, we had rain here in California, which is always exciting because of, you know, we've been through so many years of drought, but the next day, which I guess would have been yesterday at the time we're recording this, um, it, the sun came out, which is also nice, but the, there were big, huge billowing clouds that remained in the sky and um, all day long, they just moved slowly and and low through the sky. And we also have a mountain range of the Santa Ana Mountains. And so just to see the clouds passing over the mountains and to watch the colors of the mountains turning from green to purple as the, you know, as the cloud goes by. And it's like this, it's like watching these um, slowly moving images, the shadows on the, on the mountain range. It, um, yeah, it's, I guess it's like what you were saying with watching the thunderstorms on the prairies. Like it's just yeah. that big sense that that big celestial experience. Um, the sky can be, the sky can be. I don't want to say just entertainment that that makes it too cheap, but the sky is fascinating. And well, it draws you, just draws you yeah. up. Yeah, it, your it mind does. and your heart. It does, and it also reminded me. To, just watching those clouds reminded me of the the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, who I read last week, um, a great English poet, and he has uh, he was also fascinated uh, by by clouds in the sky and, and and wrote frequently about them. And so uh, there's he's got a, a poem um, with with a very long title that nature is a Heraclitian fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. But it starts out by talking about the, the majesty of clouds. And I'll just read two, two lines. Cloud puffball, torn tufts, tossed pillows, flaunt forth, then Chevy on an air-built thoroughfare, heavy roisterers in gay gangs. They throng, they glitter in marches. What that was, a great. <laughs> that was my experience with those clouds. So. Wow. Well, <laughs> that's fantastic, Amy. I think that's what a, what a fantastic example and and a poem so i need to go first from now on because now i feel like this is like mine is going to be so anticlimactic uh, after. <laughs> that's that is that's fantastic well of course now you, you know me this is uh, uh you know the, the the cold weather and i'm up uh, in, in north in the great lakes area so uh, my enchanting moments right now are all around the cold and snow and mm-hmm. and ice and things like that not quite like the the, uh, the Southern California, but I had another experience. If you remember last time I talked about seeing the snow covered fields and everything, but a, a, a similar, but different experience. 
uh, we, we were up, I don't know if people are familiar with uh, the Sturgeon Bay area up in, in Wisconsin and, and it, Door County, who was, was it, I can't remember who the, was it TSL? Somebody wrote about Door County. It's absolutely fabulous. It's on the edge of the peninsula that goes out into Lake Michigan and Door County is just an absolutely beautiful area. You go through and you stop at the apple orchards and you stop at, you know, all that kind of thing. And anyway, it's wintertime, so no apples. But we were up in that area because we like it. And uh, it's fascinating even in the, even in the wintertime. But we went over by on the uh, the uh, eastern side of the peninsula and we're Lake, you, right next to Lake Michigan. And I happened to just notice. It, it, was, it was amazing. Now, now, Lake Michigan is kind of like an ocean when you're just standing there. It's just it's kind of like an ocean. In fact, there's a naval base uh, training that's on Lake Michigan. Oh. So it's almost like you're looking out over uh, over an ocean. And I saw like waves crashing. And I've been by that area before. And even though you do get waves on Lake Michigan, you only just see them crashing with these high arcing crashes. I, what's going on? Wow. And what I saw was there was a lot of like broken ice. So the ice, there was this uh, kind of an ice flow. Mm. And and we just sat there and we just watched the lake just roll and pick up all this ice flow mm. and then move it toward the shore and then the water crashing over the the ice. It I, I took a video <laughs> to show you something. Wow. It, and it was so fascinating that we we stayed there and then we drove down to a park a little bit further down where we had a slightly better view and we could see the whole thing. And it was absolutely beautiful. If you've never watched like a like an ice flow mm-hmm. where the ice breaks up and, and the water is just moving these large chunks of ice along and uh, has sort of this ocean like crashing over the over the uh, over it. So it's very pristine and, and, and very beautiful. And it gives you a sense of the kind of like the sky lifts your, your you know, your mind. It. it the sense you get, and I'm sure you know it from being around the the, the ocean, is a sense of uh, majestic power. Yes, you know, a, a sense of just something great moving these bodies of water, and and mixing with the beauty of pristine ice flows that really caught my attention, and and we just sort of just made an effort to go to several locations just wow. just to look at it. And, uh, so those are things that, again, that's, yeah. that it was just going on. <laughs> um, it was just going on. I mean, it, it's, these things are happening all around us. Wow. Well, it's such a, it's such a big and wonderful world out there. And, um, and it's an adventure. It's, it's an adventure to be discovered and to be lived. And that is kind of what we're talking about today. Well, it, it is. It's. Yeah. I, I keep referring to the fact that it's happening all around us, and I think it's an important theme of what we're talking about. In in our ordinary world, we just drive down the road, and the the ice flows are flowing, and the water's crashing, but we're too busy being frustrated about something in our life <laughs> to to notice it, and you know, we just we have to be able to step back and raise our heads and see that this majesty is going on, um, it's, it's happening, whether we're paying attention to it or not. Well, in the traditional hero's story, the way that that 
often happens is through an actual call or an invitation because we can be so often just um, ignorant of, of that grand adventure that's there waiting for us. And so um, as we talked about last week with the ordinary world, that's the world that the hero inhabits, um, you know, to a greater or lesser degree of contentment. But then someone comes along and disturbs that ordinary world with an invitation to an adventure. Yes. This invitation often comes from a mysterious stranger. So think of like Gandalf inviting Bilbo Baggins uh, to go on an adventure in, in The Hobbit. Or we can think of um, of Harry Potter when he meets Hagrid and Dumbledore and he's invited into that world of magic. Uh, so it can be exciting. But it can also mean, you know, it also means leaving the the comfort of of a known world for yeah. the risk and danger of an unknown world. Yeah, it 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 means uh, stepping out, you know, and that's yes. one of the hard things about the the ordinary the ordinary world. And again, we want to stress that, you know, spirituality is is about living in the ordinary, you know. Spirituality is about experiencing the ordinary in an extraordinary way. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're, you know, we're bound up in the ordinary. So, but we get these calls to the extraordinary world. And that's what makes, um, makes the, this call, um, you know, so powerful for us. So that's what we're going to find in the life of Joan of Arc is exactly what you talked about, Amy. Okay. So, yes, so Joan of Arc does experience a call, a a call to an adventure. I think her call plays out a little differently than the traditional hero's journey. And it's it's because in in her case, the call comes from heaven, (laughs) a mysterious stranger from heaven. Now, there is a lot of modern speculation and, you know, what, what we call skepticism about the source of what Joan called her voices, you know, and there's a lot of theories about that. But for, for us, as, you know, for what we're calling this being in the story, this, this process of being in Joan's story, we want to set aside our skepticism and just receive the story that Twain tells us. We, we, uh, we want to we want to let it speak uh, to us and to be willing to accept it at face value. And, you know, we have to sort of set aside our biases and take a look at it, you know, strictly in a, in a, in a sense of, uh, of, of, like you said, what the story is trying to say, because, you know, you said something about the call, you know, coming from heaven and, you know, I mean, to some degree, I think all of our calls, you know, uh, come from maybe not directly like like Jones did, but sort of in a in a certain way. I'll, and I'll give you an example because I have this kind of in my head now from what you said, because there was a there was a poem and I, I wrote a poem some long time ago, but it was a poem whereby the waters of the fountain overflowed. So, for example, I was the poor person at the bottom needing the drink of water and the waters were flowing from heaven, but they didn't flow directly to me. They flowed through a fountain. And as the fountain overflowed, the waters fell to me. And I, and, and, and the interpretation of the poem was that in my life, St. Joan is an example of someone who the, if you consider the waters to be the grace 
the waters of grace. Mm -hmm. So the waters of grace, you know, God obviously called Joan to a special mission. And as those waters of grace overflow, they, they flow over to us. And so that's the whole idea of the, you know, the communion of saints that, that we have is that we receive the overflow of graces in accord with the relationship that the Lord wishes for us to have. And so when you were talking about these uh, uh, calls coming from heaven, thinking, well, but there is sort of this notion that maybe, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't get this St. Michael, the archangel coming <laughs> to me, but in a sense, there was an overflow of grace mm -hmm. through the heart of St. Joan that fell to this poor person uh, sitting in the ordinary world, if that makes any sense. Wow. What a, what a beautiful image. And again, we can, even if St. Michael is not showing up on our doorstep, we can, we can think of these calls as an invitation to experience transcendence, like that, that felt intuition that there are true, good and beautiful things that are beyond our everyday experience, beyond our dome of oppression. And yes. So and they capture our attention and we have a desire to pursue them. And I, that's an important thing. So we have that sense that we need, it's almost like someone calling us in a mystery and, and going, I, I need to, let me, let me go down this trail. I wonder what's down this trail. There's, there's something that seems like you said, intuitively good. There's something that seems right. Something that seems to have integrity that, that, that seems to be something that holds, brings me together as a whole person. And I want to know more about that. It speaks to me. Speaks to me. And I want to know more about that. Yeah. So now my journey begins. So so let's pursue this, <laughs> this journey and, and get back into our story with Mark Twain. Uh, we read chapters four, five, and six this week. And here we start to see... Um, Jones, you know, what, what may have been an idyllic village life at, you know, at some point it, it, it starts to be, be shaken up by what's happening in the political realm. And so maybe you can, Walter, maybe you can just fill us in on the context of the hundred years war that's raging at this time. Yeah. Well, for uh, the listeners, you know, who may not be, may not be familiar, probably a lot of people have heard about the hundred years war. Uh, maybe not everyone is is familiar with it. So just at, at a very high level, uh, you know, the Hundred Years' War was really a, a series of wars. It really wasn't a continuous day-to-day -day conflict between England and France, but it was a it was a period of aggression and uh, conflict over a period of roughly hundred years, from uh, early in the 14th century uh, up through you know, the early, uh, mid, uh, 15th century, uh, not long after, uh, Joan, Joan died. And I mean, the, the, the gist of it was, uh, really a, a, a fight over the legitimate dynastic claim to, uh, uh, France. And, and, and so just, you know, in a nutshell, most people know King St. Louis. And, and so within a generation or two after King St. Louis, we had, uh, a King that, um, you know, the, the Capetian dynasty lasted a long time, but there's always that point at which, you know, the children don't live and things like that. And so there was a, there was a, a, there was not a natural heir 
uh, to the dynasty. Was it contested? The throne was contested. It was. It was. It was contested. And the 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 thing is, the only the only tr- the only biological heir was a female, a daughter, married to the king of England. Well, in the old Salic law tradition, going back to the Franks, women cannot inherit the the throne. And as I read, one author said, you know, France had kind of ignored that for a long time. But suddenly when it turned into the King of England now gets to claim the, the throne of France, suddenly we all remembered the Salic. Oh, hey, wait a minute. We can't do this. Um, and so the discussion of Salic law came back in and the decision was made to give it to a cadet branch, uh, the Valois. And so the cadet branch um, uh, uh, took it. So that so there was a conflict, obviously between who was really going to claim. So without going into a lot of detail, then there were uh, uh, tremendous, but, but there is one point I think we have to remember because it comes up in uh, Joan's story quite a bit is uh, it, about maybe um, seven or eight years before Joan was, uh, was born. Uh, we had the battle of Agincourt and that's the famous battle where Henry the V uh, of England uh, they destroyed the French nobility at, at mortalized in the famous Shakespeare. Yes, yes, and and so we we do want to remember that was sort of a toward the end of the Hundred Years' War, and that that was a moment that, and in fact, some of Joan's captains fought in that war, and um, well, actually, excuse me, I'm not sure they fought in the war, but they were very familiar with it. But we have to remember that 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 battle was very close on the memory of the French people, and it was demoralized. And so remember last time we talked about France came as an allegory and it was beaten and the French were just beaten down, demoralized. Well, a lot of this was the the reverberating effects of Henry V's victory um, that basically destroyed the the, the backbone uh, of the of the French people and gave um, you know quite a quite a quite a blow to France. So it is important to remember that that was an important aspect of the Hundred Years' War, but essentially it was a very long conflict over the uh, claim to the throne of France uh, due to a dynastic, uh, uh, a different view on the dynastic uh, legitimacy. Is it is it too much to say that this moment of the story that it, it's it's an existential crisis for France? I mean, oh, it's it's, it's yeah, uh, it is. I would say it's beyond an existential crisis. It's almost France is completely gone, which is not a time. But, you know, in the, going back to the story, when you when you look at um, when when Mark Twain is the Comte de Sur is, is, is speaking with the uh, with Joan, he, he he brings that up to her. Uh, he brings up to, to Joan the fact that, uh, come on, Joan, let's let's look at this with facts and figures it's over. France is dead. So just, you know, any logical person can see. And she, of course, refused to believe it. She knew that that is not true, no matter how much of a corpse it would appear to be. So if you remember coming through the Hundred Years' War, another thing that's important for the the listener to to remember is Northern, you know, Normandy and Northern France was controlled by the, by the, the English. And they had an alliance with Burgundy, which was, you know, on the on the eastern side. So there was an Anglo-Burgundy. So first of all, France was in a civil war between the uh, Burgundians and the um, supporters of the Charles VII. And that's a whole different story that goes way back to conflict between the princes. 
So they were effectively engaged in a civil war. And then the, the, uh, the English took advantage of that during that phase of the Hundred Years' War. So there was, a, there was an alliance between England and, uh, and Burgundy. So what was left? And, and, and Mark Twain references this in, in, in the book. He talks about the Loire River. And really all that was left of France, France was probably 30% of what it, what it had been. Uh, basically, all that Charles VII had in terms of uh, the Armagnac uh, uh, true uh, France was south of the Loire Valley and over to Chinon, where he was hiding out. And the uh, English and the Burgundian Anglo alliance occupied most of the northern part of France. So it's important for for the for the listener to realize that that this is what Joan was against. So and and that river, it, the river was really just stalling them because you know it was a natural it was a it was a natural barrier, and that's what the in the story the Comte de Sur, Joan's right. narrator, he has to draw that for her on the ground because she she keeps saying, well, no, France is, is not lost; it will rise again. And he's like, Joan, let's right. look at this. Let me draw this out for you. Right. Every everything. Well, you know, it's it's also important to realize that in in real life that uh, Domri Me and then Vaucouleur, where she went uh, to uh, when she finally went on her mission and she went first to get support at Vaucouleur, those were islands of French support for Charles the Seventh in the middle of enemy Burgundian territory. So they, they, they were living surrounded by, so when you, when well, you read this. Sense. Yeah, because he, because uh, this, in the story, they talk about getting invites with the Burgundian boys at the next village. <laughs> exactly. And so when you, when you, when you read in, in chapters four, five, and six, and you go through particularly in, in four and five and just kind of combining those two chapters together. So in, in, in chapter four, what we do is we get, this terrible news. Okay. So let's look at chapter four. The, the kids are out playing and they're doing all this. And here comes a black flag. And the, um, they, they get this really bad news about the treaty of, 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 of Troy. I'll, I'll just say it. And, it, and so what, what happened in, in the treaty was uh, that essentially, you know, let's, let's step back. Charles VII's father was king and he was the mad king. So that's important to uh, realize is that Charles VII, his father was a mad king. And that, that's what ultimately brought the Civil War about, right? So here's the mad king. Uh, there's something wrong, wrong with him. And, and that won't go into the whole Civil War thing, but it, it drew a conflict between the relatives of Charles VII, one of whom was the Duke of Orléans, uh, or was the, I guess, the Duke of Orléans, and the other was the Prince of Burgundy, who was a, who was a cousin. And so it came down to who's really going to run France because the king can't manage France. And so therein goes the, you know, the problem. And then somebody murders somebody and you have a civil war in your hands. But so the mad king is is there, but uh, his, uh, the wife, the queen, um, makes a uh, treaty with England. And says, you know what? Let's let's just kind of end this thing. And here's the deal: you marry our daughter. So the daughter of the French king and queen went to marry Henry V. And as a result, the idea was: when you have a child, that child will become the king of both. It will have both crowns instead of her son. 
whom Charles the Seventh, the Dauphin, whom she just seemed to she just seemed to disinherit. Yeah, I've seen defenses of her in 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 books, but for the most part, people have a very negative view of uh, of. <laughs> well, well Belloc certainly does. Right. Many of our readers have read that story. Right. Sure. Very negative view in history. There are some that'll go in, you know, as they always do and say, well, let's let's relook at it. But uh, anyway, yes. Yeah, so so essentially disinheriting Charles VII, offering the hand of their daughter and then sealing that at the at the death of the king and, and the well, the birth of the of the son that that England would be able to take. So it's basically handing over France over a period of time to England. And so we see this in the story and they're in disbelief and, and, and oh, they just can't believe it. And of course the, 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 the kids who are cowardly, but they act brave. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll defend France to the death. They'll never know what hit them. They seem to be unaware of the reality of the devastation. And that's what the uh, uh, Comte Sur is trying to tell Joan is he's, he says, I don't think you all understand the situation. It's, it's over. Well, you know, then they, then they have the messenger come, the Burgundian uh, who comes and gives the message and, and says the King is dead. And guess what? So when you say it was an existential crisis, it was almost beyond that. It was a treaty has been made to hand over France to England. And guess what? The king died yeah. and the treaty is in place. Yeah. It, it's over there. Like he's saying, there is no more France. And Joan is saying, that's not right. So just at the peak of this, this moment, though, this, um, the king has died. They all learn of it. Then Twain does something interesting because he eclipses those events with another with another thing that happens there in the village. And can you tell us about um, the madman? <laughs> well, I think it's a, another sort of stroke of, of brilliance. A amidst all this, as you say, there's a moment in which we, I think we have what I think is clearly an, uh, clearly an allegory. From behind the fairy's tree, Right. The fairy's tree is essentially that an allegory, maybe in itself. It was a real thing. But remember, Twain introduced in the fairy's tree that we're in a world of the ordinary and a world of the extraordinary. We're going to continue to be in these worlds as we go through Well, from behind the fairy's tree. And I don't think it was an accident that it's from behind the fairy's tree. It wasn't just from behind someplace in the forest. Out pops a madman with an axe. Now it's somebody that apparently they all knew in. He's the, normally locked up. He's kept He's normally locked up, but somehow he became unlocked. Now I haven't read every single text on Joan of Arc, but I've read a lot of history. I have never seen ever any reference to a madman or any incident with a, with a madman in the history. So I think this is clearly a literary device, a literary device where we're going to learn a truth through a lit literary advice. So the madman comes out with the ax. What does everyone do? All the kids, they run. They do what we would do, just run like people and run and hide in the forest. Yeah. They turn around and look and with horror, there's one person still there standing, facing the madman. The axe over her head, and that's Joan. Joan never ran. 
she stood there and the madman literally has the axe over her head and they're looking in horror like oh this is awful i can't look i don't want to see joan get get killed and all this and they kind of cover their eyes and then all of a sudden they look back up and what's happening but joan is walking hand in hand with the madman down the field toward the town with the axe in her hand now and walking toward and and he goes back into his cage now that is an amazingly brilliant allegory or literary device uh, about you know uh, uh, showing us what we're going to find in the story of Joan of Arc because we're going to find that there's there um you know, at the end of her life, effectively, she there's there's a, a madman in the sense of the people who attack her and the people who look to uh, defame her and, and everything. And one of the things that's striking about Joan of Arc is what we're going to find as we go through her life is that no matter how she got treated by church authorities, her love for the church itself never dissipated. So she could take, even when the church authorities appeared as madmen coming to attack her, she could take them by the hand. Because the story, Mark Twain says in the story that she knew the madman, mm -hmm. that she had been, you know, she was friends. Like she was able to speak as a friend with the madman and then take the ax, take the hand and uh, walk with the madman down to, and, and I think that, that's an important thing. So let's think about Joan for a second. No matter how bad France is off, no matter, no matter what you see around you about France, France is not dead. France is alive. No matter how the church authorities treat her or the, the bad church authorities, the, the corrupt church authorities t uh, t uh, treat her, she, she, all, she has always this vision of the church. France is is beautiful and good. The church is beautiful and good. And she can always separate that from the evil realities that she's seen. From some of its constituent parts. Yeah. And so that's a really important uh, part about Joan. So mm -hmm. that, that, that sort of inter, you know, introduces or, or shows us that they're truly, we are working toward a very heroic, uh, ending yes. uh, in, in this. And then we, we're, we're brought very quickly back to reality with the treaty, the death of the king, and and they have to run, which was which was true. They all had to run to Neufchateau. Because their uh, village was pillaged. Their village was burned. So you say, well, why 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 did they their village get burned? Because they're small islands of resistance in the middle of the Anglo-Burgundian uh, area. So now that the king died and the treaty is in place, the Burgundians are feeling uh, their oats. They're feeling like it's, we can just, let's go burn these places down. You know, these resistors that are out here, you've lost. We're going to burn your villages down. And so they're, they're, uh, this was a very dramatic moment uh, uh, for that. And so we see this, this harsh reality now coming back in, uh, in, in the story. And, and it's actually a, a, a true story. So it, it's all very true. And, um, uh, I remember that, uh, there's a, uh, you can read in, you know, other history, Burgundian comes to, um, to, to Dom Remy and Joan is sweet and wonderful as she is. Uh, she's, 
a strong spirit and, and she, um, she did make that, that quote that Mark Twain says, where she told the Burgundian, she said, I would, you know, I would take your head off, you know, you being a Burgundian, I would take your head off. But then she clarifies it with, if it were the will of God. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I, I would, I might see thy head struck from thy body. And right. then with a pause and crossing herself, if it were the will of God. If it were the will of God. And, and that that actually happened. That's that's actually in, in, in the history where she she clearly was not a not a friend of Burgundy, but she didn't want to do anything if it wasn't, I'll take your head off, but only if it's the will of God. But just know that I will take your head off if that's so uh so we're we're back into this reality. So where we are, uh, Amy, is we've we've fixated ourselves to where uh Mark Twain has established the aura that we're in, the ordinary and the extraordinary. He's a, we talked about that last time. He's sort of advanced that this is going to be, you know, the allegory, the, the, the allegory of the, the madman is maybe that sort of last step to, to finally getting us now into maybe a more linear view, uh, a historical view where we start marching through time with Joan of Arc and we get into this environment where they learn the tragedy of the treaty. Then they learn the king is dead. The treaty's in place give up it's over england has taken over and then the backdrop is is that you still have charles and the 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 french below the loire valley and what's going to come up very quickly is what is the point of resistance to keep england out of the loire valley to basically brush all of france away is orleans and we're going to get to that because one of the most famous battles in history is the Battle of Orleans. And so the the the, the English are uh, holding a siege around Orleans. And that's their point of entry to go beyond the Loire. So all they need to do, all they need to do is break the back of Orleans and they will sweep into southern France. This is the this is the setup uh that is going on behind the scenes it is desperate literally it is orleans is the moment of absolute desperation and what happens well we we before we could get to orleans we do have to discuss well, what happens well, in terms of a call and that's what I, that's what i mean is so so how does how, do, how are we going to connect all this well now interestingly interestingly if you notice, Mark Twain doesn't talk about the moment. He talks about it for a year and a half after that, Joan was different. I find it very fascinating. He doesn't dare to go into that certain sacred ground. But in reality, what happened was Joan uh, walked out of her home, at, which was next to the church. And in her father's garden, she came upon a great light. And she received her call and she had basically a, a visit from St. Michael, the archangel. And this was when she was around 13 years old. And St. Michael, you know, told her that she's been called to do great things. Yeah. And she's been called to, to save, uh, save France. And, it's important to know that she received these visitations essentially daily from uh, the, the three that she mentioned were St. Michael, the Archangel, St. Uh, uh, Catherine of, 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 um, Al, uh, 
of Alexandria and St. Margaret of Antioch um, were the saints that uh, would come to visit, though she often talked about maybe a larger host of saints and angels. But she received her call. But it's very important to know that she didn't just jump on a horse and take off. She well, received calls for many for many years. It took it took roughly four years for the the quote unquote voices. These are her famous voices. It took roughly four years for the voices to prepare her. And, and Twain doesn't cover all of that. So he he says, you know, he he kind of fast forwards. He says, but now for a whole year and a half, she had been mainly grave, not melancholy, but given to thought, abstraction, dreams. She was carrying France upon her heart, and she found the burden not light. And th that's the words of the the narrator, the Sir de Conte. Yeah, I find that very interesting because he 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 doesn't come in and say, you know, because how are you going to do it? You can say, oh, I was staring over into the garden, and I happened to see Joan, like to try to make up some story about how you saw it. When I think he just left that sacred moment alone, and he just references and says, you know, for about a year, she's 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 in her fourteenth year. Uh, and for about a year and a half, she's been acting a little differently. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the moment happened, which was the moment that she received her call from St. Saint, uh, Saint Michael. But then we, so, we do see, though, we do see a, a, a scene where she receives a visitation and the narrator, the Sir de Comte, he is a witness to it. But because he's, you know, but because he's he's a fallible person like the rest of us, like he doesn't see the glory of the angel. What he sees is like a shining shadow. Yeah, he so exactly. He he needs to communicate to us what this what this call is. Mm -hmm. So he stays away from trying to act like right. he, he right. saw the actual thing happen. But what he does do is exactly as you said, Amy, it's, it's, it's been some time and he, but see, this fits the story because Joan did receive continual visitations for like four years to prepare her. So I, th there's a, there's a lesson in this, I think. And that is that when we receive our call, when we receive our call from, from heaven, even if it's not as grand as this, that it's a journey. It's, it's a, it's a life journey. It's something that's calling us to begin, at least certainly wasn't in my case. And even in Joan's case, it was a call to begin the journey. Uh, and even Joan, she had to be prepared. She had to be, you can imagine how difficult that would be in the natural realm for a child of say 13 years old. Uh, you know, you don't just walk out and go, oh, wow, it was St. Michael. I got to get on my horse and go save France because he said that's just not the, the way it works. There was a there was a moment where she had to grapple mm -hmm. with what it was she saw. Now, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but uh, when you read Regine Pernod, there's a fascinating uh, when you read her actual trial transcripts. Uh, and I think this is this is a really important point. Uh, and it's very revealing about Joan and what happened when she had her visitation. The clearly uh, the, the people that were challenging Joan uh, later in her life in the inquisition, they, they, you know, people act like everyone was so superstitious back in those days. They were far from it. They knew darn good and well that the devil can appear as an angel of light. And they, they were really pressing on how do you know, that this was from heaven. 
how do you know that it wasn't, you know, demonic? And her, her answers were very, in her, in her typical way, straightforward, blunt, and to the point. And she went through the, the, the series of questions with them. And she said, how did you know that these were angels? And she, you know, essentially she just said that they spoke like angels and I knew they were, they were angels and said, well, you know, what did they instruct you to do? And she, she told me, she said, well, they instructed me to be good and to go to church. And, um, you know, she just basically kind of laid it out and said, um, I knew they were in angels. I intuitively knew that they were good. And I knew that, um, that, you know, they told me to go to church to be good. So I knew that they were encouraging me to do good things. And so, uh, yeah, so this is kind of the big moment that we, we end up with in, in chapter six is she's received her call. And we're going to find that, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, what comes after the call next week. Um, and, uh, as you say, it's not, it's not like moving from the call immediately to, to the, um, the action, you know, there yep. is, a, there is a process of, of discovery and preparation that right. is for most of right. us. So yeah, there's just the tremendous lesson, but it's a great, the story continues on and, and really the anticipation continues to build because uh, what we've laid for you today is the reality of the world around Joan, you know, the devastation, the war, it's over, give up, the treaties in place. The, the only thing that separates England from everything is the Loire Valley and the Loire River and Orléans and all, it's just over. Yeah. But we see, the, we see the extraordinary. Remember, Twain brings both we see the extraordinary. She's received her call and things are going to get very exciting. Very interesting. Very soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up with a couple of reflective questions for our listeners. Okay. Yeah. Well, why don't you go first? Okay, certainly. So, um, so my first question is, have you been faced with a situation where you were tempted to run away, but found the courage to stand your ground instead? Describe that experience. What helped you face this situation with courage? Very good. Yeah. So a situation where you're scared and want to run away, but you stay instead and, and face it. You're facing a madman with an axe. With an axe. <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, next question, describe an experience of beauty or wonder that drew you out of yourself. What did it feel like? How were you different after this experience? Oh, that's great. Uh, a, a visit from St. Michael, the Archangel. And so we'll, we'll remind our readers that these questions will be found in the show notes. Uh, so you can refer to them and, and Fantastic. Answer, answer them in your own time. So Fantastic. Oh, well, mine are, mine are somewhat what was similar, not, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my first question is, or, 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 you know, request, describe a time when you felt all alone facing a significant life event and what was your reaction? Mm. I, think, you know, I think we've all sort of had those moments yeah. when it was, um, it, it was, it was a life event and we had to make a significant decision and to some degree we felt all alone. And it's quite possible that that moment could be the same moment that I talked about the, that moment when you want to run away because you do feel like you're left alone. A, a, exactly. And I, and I think it's important too, that the reason I challenge the listener with this a little bit is to, to make an association, that lived experience, the walking with us in this journey 
with Joan is to start making some of those connections between when I was in a situation like that, that was similar to the one that Joan was in and to just reflect on, uh, you know, the, the reaction, uh, that, you know, that, that we had. And so the, the second, the second question kind of follow up on that, describe how you work through that event and what was the defining moment. So I'm, I'm just sort of challenging the listener to think through, uh, when they too had those calls, those defining moments and, uh, how did how did they work through those? And we learned to then correlate that with what we're thinking about with Joan of Arc. Wow, that's so good. Well, Walter, it's been another amazing hour talking about Joan. Well, this is just the we're just we're just getting into like this is the oh I know the, the ramp to get to the exciting stuff. Where we've got lots of really exciting stuff coming. Well, we we did forget to open with our with our prayer. So um, instead, I think we'll go ahead and close with our prayer of the heroic cards today. Okay, we'll we'll do yeah. that. Okay. So I'll I'll uh, go ahead and, if you, and and do the prayer of the heroic cards that we have in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Sacred Heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith, heroic hearts of the cross wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you. Make us ready to suffer to show our love. And like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. Amen. In the name Amen. of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you. Well, thank uh, you. And we will we'll be here so, again next week. So we'll move forward. All right. Have, have a great Thanks. day, everyone. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. The World I Live In by Mary Oliver I have refused to live locked in the orderly house of reasons and proofs. The world I live in and believe in is wider than that. And anyway, what's wrong with maybe? You wouldn't believe what once or twice I have seen. I'll just tell you this. Only if there are angels in your head will you ever possibly see one.